This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The early years of a child are extremely important for establishing growth, maturation, and development. Good nutrition is felt to be an important component for these benefits to take place. Yet there's evidence that a substantial proportion of our children are not receiving the nutrition they should. Inadequate nutrition can lead to issues not only in later childhood, but chronic health problems in adulthood as well. The topic for today's podcast is nutrition in early childhood. And we'll be discussing such issues as what are the most common nutritional deficiencies our young children face? What are the potential long-term complications of inadequate nutrition in early childhood? And what's the solution to improving nutrition? My guest is Dr. Angela Matke, a pediatrician from the Division of Community Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Angela, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Well, as a geriatrician, I knew very little about early childhood nutrition, so I've been doing some reading on it, and I'm not an expert, but uh, this should be rather interesting, because I'm always interested in learning new things. So let's start by asking you to tell us, how, how common is this? How common is inadequate nutrition in the United States for children? You know, unfortunately, it's all too common. We can see underweight children being malnourished. We can see children that are overweight being malnourished. There's a couple studies I was going to share with you just to, to, because I think as physicians, sometimes we like to hear the data and it sticks with us. One study was done by the NIH National Lung and Heart and Blood Institute, as well as the American Heart Association. And it was looked at children from about 1999 to 2016. And unfortunately, what they found was really disheartening, but not surprising. Ideal diets remained very low over the study period, and they were about less than 1%. But I was a little happy to see that we did see low quality diets decrease, and we saw intermediate quality diets increase. So we're, we're moving in the right direction, but this study ended in 2016. So we do know that the pandemic had some very catastrophic effects on childhood nutrition in the United States. And what we define as an ideal diet by the AHA is one that reflects a high amounts of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, fish, shellfish, low amounts of sweetened beverages and sodium. And they also evaluated whether there were nuts, seeds, legumes, processed meat, and saturated fat as they created what was an ideal diet. Most recent research I saw on this was actually really, really sad as well. This was just recently published in February of 2023. They unfortunately found that this was in the United States um, and it was published in the MMWR Weekly. And they found one in two children did not eat a daily vegetable and one in three children did not eat a daily fruit. And that was in the one to five-year-old age group. So children are not eating you know, the fruits and vegetables and really important parts of the recommended diet in the United States, unfortunately. So it is a big issue. Yeah, there, it is really there, a big there, issue. Are there some children who are at greater risk than others for this problem? 
Yeah, I would say infants. So infants uh, through the first step thousand days is really critical. It's a critical period of brain development. And that's why any kind of deficiencies that happen during this time frame can put them at risk for poor brain development, problems with learning, um, low immunity problems, increased risk of infections and death. And we know that these children, any kind of nutritional deficiencies actually if they occur during this period, they may not be reversible with nutrition repletion. Why is this a problem? What's the cause? Is it lack of knowledge on the part of the parents, lack of education, um, financial issues? What's underlying all this? I mean, I think it's like so many issues that we see uh, with American health, whether it's geriatrics in your area or, you know, pediatric nutrition. I think it's multifactorial. You know, we have many children that are struggling with food insecurity and households in the United States that are struggling with food insecurity. And I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Sometimes it's food deserts, whether there's a lack of access to healthy foods. Sometimes it's just lack of education or knowledge. And then, you know, marketing is huge, right? So we know how effective marketing is and how children specifically have been targeted. You know, I remember as a child and there's been changes in marketing directed towards teens and children, but I mean, that's huge, right? You see this on your advertisement on your TV show or when on something you're streaming and obviously kids are going to be more prone to wanting to ask for that. Parents are also going to be more prone to grab it. And sometimes the marketing hasn't always been truthful, right? And so parents are doing their best, right? I always want to try to assume benign intent, but if they're being told something is, you know, healthy or marketing on juice and other things like that, they think they're doing a good thing for their child, but maybe in reality, it isn't as healthy as some other options would be. Yeah. Yeah. I think marketing is a big issue. I mean, I can think back to my childhood, which is a few years back, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, I recall back then, uh, some of the least healthy cereals would include a tiny, cheap little toy mm -hmm. that we had to have, and uh, yep. we would convince my mother to buy it for us. So yeah, marketing plays a role. Yeah, I have those same yeah. anecdotes from my childhood. So yeah, we're seeing a significant increase in single parent homes over the past several decades with both parents working outside of the home and therefore their kids are fed by another caregiver. Is there any evidence that showed that these children are at increased risk? You know, it might play more into the fact of the economics. So if you have a single parent household, they may have limited financial capabilities to be able to buy fresh fruits and vegetables and other things. And it might speak less to the fact of whether there's two parents in the household. It's, it might be solely related to income. I don't necessarily know about the data related to that, but that's what I would hypothesize. And that's what mm -hmm. I've seen anecdotally in my, in my clinics as well. Okay. But I would say two-parent households, they still have this very similar yeah. issue sometimes with being able to provide um, or offer nutritious foods to their children. Okay. Well, let's go back really early in life and talk about what are the benefits of breastfeeding? I guess that would include nutrition there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of research on the short-term benefits. And the long-term benefits are a little bit harder to research in general because of confounding variables and being able to prospectively study these children. But let's start with the short-term benefits. And as I was researching this, like the ones that I used to know, have, they've just continued to show more and more research about the short-term benefits. So neurobehavioral, huge, important 
part of childhood development. So reduce crying, better management of blood sugars, especially in that first week of life where we see a lot of hypoglycemia. There's better um, cardiorespiratory stability in these children. And there's also breastfeeding provides an analgesic effect. And so um, when children are going to have to do painful procedures and stuff, we do see breastfeeding as being beneficial in reducing their pain responses. Then there's the gastrointestinal effects. So when we compare human breast milk to formula, it's been shown to, especially in preterm infants, reduce the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis, a decreased intestinal permeability, and increased intestinal lactase. We also see just in general infants, we see decreased risk of gastroenteritis and diarrheal diseases. We see increased rates of gastric emptying, which therefore decreases the likelihood of, of constipation. And then everyone always thinks about the benefits of decreased infections because of um, antibody transfer and other things that are present in human breast milk. So one study looked at breastfeeding um, and whether it was associated with fewer serious infections requiring hospitalization in the first year of life. And, and they did see a reduction in hospitalizations in the first year of life. And then it extended beyond for extended breastfeeding. So I don't know if you're aware, but the American Academy of Pediatrics finally aligned their breastfeeding duration guidelines in accordance with the WHO, which is breastfeeding for two years of life. So it used to be 12 12 months of life um, by the American Academy of Pediatrics. In the United States, we do have pretty low rates of, of breastfeeding until 12 months of age to start with. So we have to rise to the challenge to continue to support women breastfeeding through that second year of life as well. There's a whole bunch of other infection sort of things, otitis media, respiratory infections, UTI, sepsis, COVID, and then there's decreased risk of SIDS as well. So some major advantages to breastfeeding. Yes. Yeah. How about children in the family where breastfeeding is not possible? Are they at a major disadvantage over others? Such a controversial question. Um, I would say personally, no, um, because I, I believe that fed is breast and I've seen exclusively breastfed children get into problems with malnutrition because of inadequate breast milk supply. But you know, the long-term outcomes are really hard to study. And so when we look at IQ and other things, they're really not able to associate much of a difference uh, when you when you factor for things like SES, uh, parental like education levels and things like that. So I would say we know that parental mental health is intimately related to success with growth and development in infants. And so adding to the parental guilt of not being able to breastfeed or not choosing to breastfeed for whatever reason is, is horrific, right? We don't want to make parental uh, mental health worse. So I would say, let's support all parents in feeding their children the way they choose. If they offer, or if they ask for recommendations, obviously the research is very clear that breast milk is superior to formula, but formula provides all of the, the essential macronutrients and micronutrients that are necessary to help an infant grow and thrive. Okay. You you referred to this answer, this question a little while ago, but I want to go over it again because it's so important. Mm -hmm. What are the basic requirements for good nutrition in early childhood? Yeah. Um, so there's importance of making sure that they have they're getting the macronutrients. Um, so that's going to be glucose. It's going to be fats, especially, you know, long chain fatty acids and omegas, and it's going to be protein. That's going to be really important, but you also need to have micronutrients. So iron, your B vitamins, your other vitamins, vitamin K, vitamin D, and choline, and some other things that are really important, especially for brain development. Um, and so that's when we look at like the basics or if you were a dietitian kind of breaking down all the different areas, those are the things they need. But when you're looking at it just from a human level, I think 
kids need to be able to be offered food and they, they need to be offered it um, appropriate amounts of food too. So that also influences their nutrition. So that's what they need. Mm-hmm. What aren't they getting? What are the more common nutritional deficiencies in early childhood? The ones that, that I tend to see and what we see in the United States is going to be different than what is seen around the world. But iron is going to be one of the most common one. In the United States, up to 15% of toddlers are iron deficient and up to 5% have iron deficiency anemia. This can have really significant effects for their long-term neurobehavioral development. Um, And so it's important that we do consider screening all children. Um, The recommendations are to screen all children between ages 9 and 15 months for iron deficiency anemia with a CBC, and then to also consider screening again in adolescent females um, that are menstruating because they're also going to be at higher risk for it. Another thing that I see is uh, vitamin D deficiency and calcium, uh, insufficient calcium intakes in their diet. Those would be probably the the two most common things that I see, but sometimes um, we'll see protein, um, inadequate protein intake. So high amounts of like sugar and glucose and um, sweetened foods in their diet, but inadequate amounts of protein. And across the world, that's one of the most common causes of malnutrition is a protein, a deficiency malnutrition. Okay. So what happens with inadequate nutrition? What are some of the complications down the road? Oh, so many things. Um, Uh, You know, like I mentioned, both... Underweight children and overweight children can have inadequate nutrition and have can have consequences from that. And so you can see bone thinning and osteoporosis later in life if we're not getting appropriate amounts of calcium, phosphorus, and vitamin D during that critical period. And one thing that parents and even doctors don't don't appreciate is is the requirements of calcium and phosphorus throughout childhood. So when we get to like the pre-adolescent and the adolescent range, they need 1300 milligrams of calcium and phosphorus per day. And that's about four glasses of, of milk if you're doing cow's milk dairy to get that. And if they're not getting that much, they're not setting their bones up for good long-term bone health. Other things that children that have inadequate nutrition are at risk for would be cardiovascular diseases, high cholesterol, hypertension, atherosclerosis later in life, type 2 diabetes, especially in those children that are overweight um, or who are physically inactive or have a family history of type 2 diabetes. We can see increased risk of asthma in children that are overweight. And then also being overweight puts them at an increased risk of certain types of cancers, liver problems like non-alcoholic fatty deposition of liver or steatohepatitis. We can see problems with hip development and bone growth in the legs. We can see early puberty. Polycystic ovary syndrome is another thing um, that we that we can see in especially adolescent females that are overweight or obese. But a third of PCOS actually occurs in, in underweight or normal weight girls. So it's not just solely related to that area. How about behavior and mental health issues? Are they related to early childhood nutrition? I'm not sure if they're related, but there's certainly some correlation studies, right? Mm -hmm. So we do see that, especially those that are overweight or in the obese category are at higher risk of, of depression and mental health disorders. And you think about all the psychosocial aspects of just being a, a child who lives in a bigger body. And then coming to my office even can be so triggering for them, right? They know they live in a bigger body, but then us pointing it out and having these conversations is, is not helping their confidence, is not helping their mental health. And so I really think as physicians and providers that are listening to this, I think one of the most important things that we can do is talk about just being building healthy and strong bodies instead of talking about kind of weight and those other things, because I am also an eating disorder provider. So this is another area because I think we can prevent both obesity and eating disorders by taking the focus off of weight, but instead focusing on lifestyle habits. Mm -hmm. 
So how can we as healthcare clinicians better assess whether these children are getting adequate nutrition? I suspect the history is mostly going to come from the parent, mm-hmm. maybe from the child, depending on how old they are. But what questions should we be asking them? You know, I think because you know, one in six kids in the United States are living with food insecurity, not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, going hungry, missing meals. I think one of the first things we need to start with, with all of our health maintenance visits across the United States is making sure that we're screening for food insecurity. Most places I'm hoping have started to incorporate the hunger vital sign tool, which is a two-question screening tool. The first question is within the past 12 months, we were worried about whether our food would run out before we had more money to buy more. And then the second one is within the past 12 months, the food we bought just didn't last and we didn't have enough money to get more. And so I think that's really important because if we know that that is a concern and that's one in six, it's 12% of kids, some studies show even higher during the pandemic, we can connect these patients to programs they might not be connected to. So um, SNAP, supplemental nutrition through WIC, food pantries, our social services um, support groups. But then just in the well-child visit, some questions that I ask is, is your child getting iron-rich foods? And and I'm a vegetarian, so it doesn't always mean it has to come from meat sources, right? And I think it's really important that physicians, if they aren't familiar with vegetarian sources, familiarize yourself with this because I sometimes I hear the questions always leading with how much meat do you eat a day? Another thing to screen for is how much dairy they're drinking. Like I talked about previously, making sure they're getting appropriate amounts of calcium, vitamin D, and phosphorus. But on the flip side, too much milk can cause iron deficiency anemia. And so we need to make sure they're not drinking too much milk. We can ask about how many servings of fruits and vegetables they're getting. Ideally, the my plate is half of their plate is fruits and vegetables. We know most kids are not getting this. Also, it's really important to screen if the children are drinking fluorinated water or if the family's cooking with fluorinated water, because we know that that dramatically reduces the risk of cavities in children. I ask about for their carbohydrate sources, what kind of grains are they getting in their diet and encourage um, whole grain foods whenever possible. And then just asking about sugary beverages and caffeinated beverages, because this has dramatically increased the the grams of sugar that children in the U.S. are eating per day. Mm -hmm. Well, now probably the most important question of all, how can we turn this around? How can we improve the nutrition of our children? Oh my gosh, I wish I had like an Mm -hmm. amazing answer for this. Um, I think we can all start first by just understanding that all parents are trying to do their best and coming at it from an approach that's not judgmental. Using motivational interviewing in our visits can be really helpful instead of just offering recommendations because we know that does not work for lifestyle changes for people across the spectrum of age, right? I think we need to make sure that we're supporting children um, in our schools. I think that's... I'm really proud to say that Minnesota just passed free lunches and breakfasts for all children because we know if one out of six kids is going hungry, sometimes there's barriers to signing up for free and reduced lunches across the United States. And so making sure that children when they're at school aren't going hungry because hungry children don't learn. I think that's really, really important. And just making sure that we continue to support um, the programs that supply nutrition to a lot of the children in the United States. Think about our farmers markets where especially there's some vegetable incentive programs where children can go and and trade in some of their SNAP benefits or other benefits to be able to get fresh fruits and vegetables that are locally grown. Angela, do you have any recommendations on where our healthcare clinicians can get accurate information regarding nutrition for the children? Yeah, there's great online resources. Nutrition.gov from the USDA and MyPlate.gov from the USDA are great resources. And the CDC also has excellent data, information for providers and families. And that's at cdc.gov backslash nutrition. Okay. Well, Angela, you've given a lot of really good information on nutrition and early childhood. 
Can you summarize our discussion maybe with uh, two or three key points? One thing we didn't talk about per se is about how parents can get their children to eat a variety of different foods. So start early with lots of different ones, continue to offer them, even if they don't like them. And then also role model, because it's very interesting in my visits, I'll see parents say, well, my kids won't eat any fruits and vegetables, but I don't eat them either. They're role modeling what their parents, their parents are doing in their office. The, the last key point would be just be aware of the food insecurity of, of U.S. children that we do have. One in six children suffers from food insecurity and hunger in the United States. And just be mindful of the ways that we can continue to support nutrition and also childhood development because that's so interrelated to childhood nutrition of the children in the United States. We've been discussing nutrition in early childhood with pediatrician Dr. Angela Matke from the Mayo Clinic. Angela, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. I learned a lot, but I'm also amazed at how many of the same issues apply to our older population as kids. So, so thank you for educating us. Thanks for having me, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.